0: Well, if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, we are in Luke chapter 4. Today we are starting our summer series of life lessons from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at what does it really look like to have Jesus Christ as Lord in our life. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. We're going to have selected passages as we go through this Gospel. Uh, I think you're going to find this literally life-changing as we engage God's Word. We're in Luke 4 this morning. One of the things that I've always enjoyed doing is reading biographies of presidents. And I've read quite a few, George Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Lincoln, Roosevelt, several on Roosevelt, uh, Truman, several on Reagan, Bushes. And it's, it's rather fascinating to dive into their lives, to find out what made them click, what was their way of life, opportunities they had, values that shaped them, significant decisions that they had to make, how they dealt with, dealt with great disappointments in their lives. It's rather fascinating to dive in deep into a person's life and understand their way and how they lived. But when we come to Jesus Christ, what is his way? How did Jesus make his identity known? And that is what we would all like to know. Who really Is Jesus. And as we begin this series going through the gospel of Luke, I want to make sure that we can answer this question that what every person needs to know about Jesus. I want you to know that like I am driven to not only know Jesus but to know him deeply. And I think that's probably why you're here as well. Who is Jesus Christ and how did he make his identity known? And if we're really going to be able to answer that question, we've got to go back 2,000 years to a hometown visit that Jesus made when he went back to Nazareth, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And the first thing that we need to know to answer the question, what does Jesus, what does every person need to know about Jesus, is this. His power and preaching were made public. So let's take a look at verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. So Jesus is going back up to Galilee. Now, only the Gospel of John actually records Jesus' first year of his public ministry. Uh, The rest, uh, as we see here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's summarized here in one verse a whole year. It's not recorded what Jesus did uh, in, the, in the southern part of, the, of Israel, but we do get glimpses of what that looked like. And so it's been a year, but now Jesus is making his way back. And I want to highlight he is returning to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God had descended upon him. You see that in Luke chapter 3. Remember, like descended upon him like as a dove. But then it was also the Spirit of God that led Jesus into the desert where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Do you remember that? But now we see the Spirit of God now bringing him back to Galilee, the northern part. So you've got the Sea of Galilee, and he is now coming back to the area that he spent his entire life. And do you notice this, that it says that news about him spread throughout the surrounding district. So he's heading back to Nazareth, and to Galilee. And the power of the Holy Spirit was evidenced by his works. Like John records that first year, like when Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding, or how he cleansed the temple. I mean, no one had done that before, but here is Jesus, and he literally says, you have destroyed my father's house. It's to be a house of prayer, And he flipped tables and threw out their coins and chased these folks that turned the worship of God into some sort of little marketplace circus. And of course, he had his ministry in Samaria, and it's summarized in one verse. But then Jesus was also doing other miracles, and people would take note, and word traveled fast that this Jesus of Nazareth had power, power from God to do works that only God could do, that demonstrated his deity. But we also see that the power of the Holy Spirit was the one who was giving him the words to say. Notice what he says in verse 15, and Luke writes, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So you need to understand something about Judaism and how the Jewish faith was practiced. Do you remember in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and they conquered the southern part of Israel. And when they did, they not only destroyed the temple, but they hauled off most of the people and kind of scattered them throughout the uh, Babylonian Empire. Now, what happened is the Jews and God had said, Listen you disregard me, you don't take me seriously, you forsake worship, your heart is not right with me, I want you to know I'm going to give you warnings, I'm going to send you prophets, but I will bring judgment because my heart is that you really know me and know life. And so when they experience judgment, when you get hauled off into Babylon and life is miserable, all of a sudden they started really thinking about God. But now they can't go to the temple anymore, so what happened is they created meeting places. That's what the word synagogue means. It has the idea of just a meeting, a gathering of people. And they gathered together, and all it would take were ten Jewish men, and they'd form these gatherings. This is where they would go and worship every Sabbath. There was this where they would receive instruction. They oftentimes uh, settled their judicial matters in these synagogues. But synagogues from that time forward, even to this very present day, played a critical role in the lives of the Jewish people. And how, was it, work? how it worked, they'd have an order of worship. And if you were a visiting rabbi, an esteemed teacher— why well, you would be the one that would bring the message that day. You would be invited to speak. And that's exactly what happened. So news about Jesus was, was really getting out. He was doing works that only God could do. His, his wisdom was absolutely fascinating. No one spoke like Jesus spoke. He didn't, like, cite a bunch of various rabbis, like, well, you know, this rabbi over here says this, and that's why this is important. no, no. When he spoke, it was absolutely authoritative. He was well-organized. His words and his messages were life-changing. And he would say things that you just you simply couldn't forget. You just kept playing them over in your mind. It caused you to go deeper, deeper into your own soul, deeper with God. They were practical. They were interesting. And he would expound the truths of the Old Testament, and they would see what really God intended. And, of course, the basis of the New Testament would be his words that would be recorded in the Gospels and then expanded upon in the rest of the New Testament. And I want you to know that this was always God's divine design. What every person needs to know about Jesus is that his power and preaching were made public. And I want you to know that is true today. Do you know the number one best-selling book every single year without exception? You know what it is? It's the Bible. The Bible that records the words And the works of Jesus. And Bibles can be found everywhere. Uh, You go into a waiting room, hotel room, they're on the internet, you go into bookstores, you will always find Bibles because God wants His Son, His words, and His works to be made public, and they are. There's something else that every person needs to know about Jesus. Not only is His power in preaching made public, but His claims to deity are clear. So take a look. He says in verse 15, he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And here in verse 16, now he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So now Jesus is back in Galilee. He spent some time in Capernaum and other of these villages and small cities all throughout Galilee. But now now finally, he comes back to his hometown, Nazareth. This is why Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. It's because where he grew up. Nazareth had held a, a Roman garrison that kind of patrolled and kind of oversaw the area. It also had some major trade routes that went through it. It wasn't a significant-sized city, but but it's an important one. And news quickly traveled. And of course, news about Jesus, who had grown up there, who was the son of Mary and adopted son of Joseph, who was a carpenter, who had his practice and who had actually done all of his work and his construction business was based in Nazareth before Jesus took off and started functioning like a rabbi and his, had this itinerant ministry where he was moving around and teaching. Word traveled fast to do a miracle, Spread like wildfire throughout Israel, who is this man? and the people of nazareth said, Why why jesus he's he 's from this town, and you know jesus um, was well known in Nazareth, and he was well known because he one of the things is he knew the the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures so well. Do you remember uh, when there was a time where they were journeying, his parents and all the folks from Nazareth were journeying back down to Jerusalem to the temple at worship, and, and they actually lost their kid. Remember? So, if you're a parent and you've lost your kid, and it certainly happened to me at some different times, right? It's a little frantic and you feel like I'm a terrible parent. But I want you to know that happened with Mary and Joseph. So, I feel a little better about myself, and you should too, right? Pressure's off. But you remember when they did find him? What was he doing? While he was interacting with the leading scribes and the teachers at the temple, right? And when they found him, he said, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And they were so astounded that someone so young could have such a strong understanding of the word. It's as if he wrote it because he knew every word and he knew its meaning. His questions were not the typical question of a 12-year-old boy. And of course, if that was the case, then Jesus would regularly, as a part of their worship practice, be asked to be one who would read the scriptures, and probably on different occasions, actually teach them, right? Because there wasn't always a rabbi that was floating through Nazareth, and so local men, local Jewish men, they would t- teach. And so let me give you kind of the liturgy that was found in a synagogue. So this is still practiced today. there were benedictions, then they recited the Shema, and then there was um, prayers. Then a reading from the law, then a readings from the prophets, and then there was a sermon exposition in which the text that you had read was explained, so you understood it and how it applied. That was the practice, and we see practices like that even today. And so that's what's happening here. Jesus is coming to his hometown, Nazareth, all his friends, his family, his brothers and sisters, Mary. All right, I can assure you there. In fact, the synagogue would have been packed out because Jesus, this hometown son, he'd returned and they'd been hearing so much about him. In fact, they knew, knew him his entire life. And so you see in verse 16, he had came to Nazareth, which, had been, which he had been brought up, and as was his custom, this was his normal practice, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And this is what the Jews did. When they read the Scriptures, they would stand in respect and reverence to God and the one who gave the Scriptures. And then when the teaching took place, in humility, the teacher would sit down, and that's, what they, and that's when the teaching would begin. And so that's exactly what we see. We see Jesus standing up. Of course he would be the one that would be to read, and to explain, to give the message, right? That makes all the sense. And so verse 17, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened up the book and found the place where it was written. Can't you see it? All eyes would be on Jesus. Here you got an attendant, and they had these scrolls. These scrolls were quite heavy, and they gave him the scroll of Isaiah. And so Jesus receives it, and he starts rolling it and winding it till he comes to Isaiah 61. A text that would be extremely well known, very familiar. It was a text that gave Israel hope, their hope. And so you see Jesus finds that and take a look what takes place. He begins reading. And so I want you to picture yourself in this synagogue, listening to Jesus As he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. They're all listening and waiting and watching. And then Jesus suddenly stops, and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You could have heard a pin drop. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Every single person would know that he was reading from Isaiah 61. These were the words about the Messiah, the hope of Israel, their hope, words that would be so familiar they would read them over and over again because they were living greatly oppressed and they thought Messiah, why he was the one that was going to rescue them. They had been waiting for God and so when Jesus reads these words they are like so familiar, but I want you to understand what is taking place. Jesus, when He says, "I am the fulfillment, these words that I've read to you." What does He say? Verse 21. "Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Why wow, that takes on a whole new flavor to those words. Jesus says, "The hope of Israel, I am Him." So let's take a look. What did he say when he's reading this? Going back to look at verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is upon me. It is God's Spirit that empowered his words and his works. And do you remember what takes place in Luke chapter uh, 3? Remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, okay? And John was to have this message of repentance, and Jesus is baptized. Why was Jesus baptized? Was, was he a sinner? No, he was perfect without sin. Why did he get baptized? Because he was identifying with John's message of repentance. It fulfilled all righteousness. And remember right at that time, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And at that time, heavens was, the heavens were opened up and the Father said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Heed Him. So you see the Spirit of God descending upon him. And that's what he's saying. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And notice he says, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is so critically important. You see, the Jewish people anointed three offices, a prophet, a priest, or a king. A prophet, one who represented God to the people, a priest, who, one who represented the people to God, and a king, a ruler. And so what they would do, and we see this practice in Judaism, uh, Israel would anoint these people with oil. And by the way, that's what the word Messiah means, anointed one, or in Greek, Christos. That's where we get our word Christ, the anointed one. You see, the Messiah is actually the fulfillment of all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king. He is the ultimate anointed one because he is God himself. He is the promised Messiah. And so when Jesus says this, he's reading from the text, and he says, because he has anointed me to preach the good news, the gospel, to the poor. I am the fulfillment. I am the anointed one, and I preach the gospel the good news, I am the reconciler. I'm the one who takes people dead in their sins and will give them life eternal in me. I and I alone can do this for I am the Messiah. And so he says, I am going to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, there's nothing inherently special about being poor, but I will tell you this, if you're really poor, I mean, like, you have nothing, chances are no one's in this room really can relate to what it means to be absolutely, totally poor. But when you're poor, there is a desire and a desperation to your life. I need help. And God says, Jesus says, I'm the one who brings the gospel to the poor. And as we go through this, there are going to be physical fulfillments to this, But they're going much deeper to that, to spiritual. Some of the physical restorations that we're going to see may happen in this life, but most certainly will happen in the life to come. But Jesus' kingdom begins spiritually in the hearts of people. And so he addresses those who find themselves poor. You are in spiritual poverty. You are conscious of your moral need, the breakdowns in your own life. If you were poor... Why, Jesus says, I've come to preach good news to you. And then he goes on to say, not only am I going to preach the gospel of the poor, but he has sent me. The Father has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Uh, The word literally is prisoners or prisoners of war. You see, if you are a captive, why, you simply your life is completely destitute and yes you see that physically but you see these words are more than just physical he's speaking to captivity of all sorts those who are in spiritual bondage bondage to satan like we saw in like ephesians chapter 2 those who are in bondage to guilt bondage to every form of sensuality and lust bondage to anger to bitterness, if that, is, if that actually expresses what your life is like, you're in bondage, and you desperately don't want to live there anymore, you want change, you want help, you want grace, Jesus says, I've been sent to proclaim release to the captives, and furthermore, and recovery of sight to the blind. Those who are spiritually blind... I will open their eyes. I will open their eyes for them to see light, those who formerly walked in darkness. And we see that this was one of the, the miracles that Jesus did on a regular basis. You see it like in Luke 18, you got a guy, he's blind. Jesus heals him. He can see. But then in Luke 19, you got a tax collector, a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Okay? Remember the wee little guy that hung out in trees, right? Because nobody liked him, it was safer up there, plus he could see better, right? But you see, Zacchaeus was spiritually blind, and Jesus gave him sight. That's what Jesus was appointed to do. He is the one who brings sight to those who understand that they are blind and see their need, and to set free those who are oppressed, the root idea of oppressed is mean like like broken to pieces, squashed by life. Um, people that are shattered, they see no way out. The people who are oppressed like this, they find living itself is oppressive. And maybe you can even relate. It's like I can barely get through the li- this day. I feel like my life is just so beaten down. I'm literally crawling, and sometimes I can't even do that. I am living so oppressed. If that's you, Jesus says, I want you to know that I have come for you. I have come to set you free from this weight that has your face in the ground to set free those who are oppressed. And then he says in verse 19, to proclaim the favorable year, of the Lord. Or um, this is the year of the Lord's favor, or another name for it, maybe you've heard of it, is the year of Jubilee. Are you familiar with the year of Jubilee? You see this like in Leviticus chapter 25, where it's all kind of spelled out. What was to happen is there were to be 49 years, okay, seven cycles of seven years, and on the 50th year was to be a year of Jubilee, A year unlike any other. And in the year of Jubilee, this is what was to take place. All slaves were to be freed. All debts were canceled. And all ancestral property went back to the original families. This was the year of Jubilee. Great rest. Rest for all the people. Rest for the land itself. A rest that was rooted in God, where God was going to supply all things. It was the year of jubilee. And to really understand how the jubilee, uh, how the year of jubilee was to work is that you must understand this key. It was inaugurated by the day of atonement. The day of atonement where God addressed the sin issues in his people. Then from there, they could move into this time of rest, of rejoicing, of literally just resting in God's goodness and his provision. A year of jubilee, the favorable year of the Lord. And we see this referenced uh, throughout the Old Testament, but here's something rather interesting. We have actually no record that the people of Israel ever celebrated the year of jubilee. We have records of them completely abandoning the Sabbath, losing track, of the seven years and the periods there, and we have no record of them celebrating the Jubilee. In fact, we find that what we do have is we have the people of Israel, and they have tokens and kind of like there's, you know, thoughts and different expressions of their faith, but at different times they even lost, like even the Word of God. And so hence, you got the semblance of religion, but you never really hear and heed the Word you're going to miss the mark, and that's where they did. They never actually seemed to celebrate the year of Jubilee. Look what Jesus says. He says, I've come to proclaim to you the favorable year of the Lord. I mean, think of this. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. Redemption, forgiveness, the day of atonement. Jesus is saying, I'm it. I am the one who is going to be the payment for sin to allow all you who truly trust in me to experience rest, rejuvenation, the restoration of all things. I'm it. The year of jubilee has come. I tell you, this is such a beautiful picture of rest. We're not trying to earn God's favor and just out of the rat race is to know the goodness and the sweetness of the provision of God himself. But here's something really interesting. He reads verse 19. This is actually Isaiah 61, verse 2a. But then suddenly he stops. Now, this would be super odd. Jesus stops like mid-verse. And notice what takes place. Verse 20, and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and, all, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here's Jesus. He's reading in the middle of the verse... And then he just closes the scroll, and he turns and he gives it to the attendant. And the attendant's like, uh, you want me to take this? But you haven't even finished the verse. And everyone would know. Like, he, he read part of the verse, but he didn't read the whole thing. And, and Jesus hands him the scroll, and like, oh, this is really unusual. We would never stop there. And then Jesus sits down. And like, what, what, was, what was the rest of the verse? Well, let me tell you. Let me read you the verse. You see it, verse 19. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the very next words, and the day of vengeance of our God. Right there, Jesus breaks it. He doesn't speak of the day of vengeance of God, he speaks of the year of Jubilee, the day of which God is bringing tremendous grace, great mercy. You see, that is the nature of his ministry. That is what is taking place from this moment on. Now, this day of vengeance, is God really going to address all the sin, all the wickedness, all the rebellion, all the refusal and rejection of him? Absolutely. And the day of vengeance, the day of the Lord, spoken throughout the Bible, there's great detail in the Old Testament. Jesus gives us a lot of detail and if you want to get a really good picture of what that's going to look like, you read the book of Revelation, where you're going to see that God is going to bring judgment for sin. Right now, I mean, look at like our world. It seems like it is just completely unraveling. Look at the breakdown in morality. Look at the evil things that are being thrust upon children. I mean, it's like we're in the day where good is called evil and evil is called good, right? And it is celebrated. And if you don't celebrate, we're gonna make your life miserable. And you're like, you're like, man, this is terrible. We gotta do something. I'll tell you what. The question is does God care and is he gonna address it? Absolutely, he is. The greatest wickedness is going to be addressed. But right now, it's the day of grace. God is inviting. He is showing his son. He's giving people an opportunity to truly come to know him. And that is Jesus' ministry. From this time to the time that he returns, it's the day of grace. And so Jesus sits down, and he's he's about ready to teach, and look what he says, verse 21. And he began to say them, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Isaiah wrote this 700 years ago, right? But Jesus says, I'm it. What he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want you to know, I am the fulfillment. I am the Messiah. And what Jesus is doing is he is impressing upon them the character and the nature of the Messiah in his ministry. You see, the Jews wanted a Messiah. But they saw a messiah really mostly like, kind of like King David the warrior, a military messiah. The one that's going to address Rome and get these guys off our back and bring our country back up to prominence where we once were. That's their idea. Military victory. Make our life good, right? We want be back in first place and we want these Romans out of here. Jesus is explaining, listen, my kingdom, it's, going to, it's a spiritual kingdom. It will start in the hearts of people One day there's going to be a physical manifestation. Everything that he has said, I want you to know Jesus is absolutely going to fulfill, whether in this life and this time or eternity. And he's giving them a real clarity as to what his kingdom is all about. And what he's driving at is he's showing them that that indeed he is God. He is the Messiah. And friends, this is all part of God's plan. You know what every person needs to know about Jesus They need to know not only his power and his preaching are made public, but his claims to deity are clear. Make no mistake about it. He is claiming to be God. And that then leads us to the third thing that every person needs to know. And that is this. His revelation requires a response. How do you think the people of Nazareth are going to handle what they just heard? I mean, they had never heard anything anything like this before. They'd heard Jesus speak before, right? They heard him read before. He grew up with them. But he had never spoke like this before. How do you think they're going to respond? Well, take a look. Verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, 'Uh, wait, uh, is this not Joseph's son? They were amazed and perplexed simultaneously. And they're like, oh my, this, this is a fulfillment of everything we've hoped for, and yet, wait a second, we've got a problem with his pedigree. Wait, we, we know this guy. He, wait, who does he think he is claiming to be the Messiah? And they go on and they're saying like, wait a second here, this, this can't be right. You're, is this not Joseph's son? Joseph likely has passed away at this point. And, but yet Jesus carried on his, his family business as a carpenter. He was known as Joseph's son, known as a carpenter, and they just can't make sense of this. It's like, hey, this is the carpenter's kid. He's from Nazareth. He's from our hometown. This, he just can't be the Messiah. And you do not need to be omniscient to be able to read a room to really read what was going on in the faces and the hearts of people. And notice what Jesus says, verse 23. He says, let me tell you what you're thinking. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He's ba- they're basically, he's saying, I know what you're thinking. And some of you are saying it because they're like, oh, what are you doing? Physician, heal yourself. Prove it. Back up your words. You show us. We've heard about things you've done, like in Capernaum, right down there, by the, right on the Sea of Galilee. Those miracles, they're like saying, hey, you know what? We're interested in those too. In fact, that'd be a really good idea if why don't you do some, some miracles, some healing, right? Because we're kind of like trying to like turn Jesus into a little sideshow, like a little attraction, Here's some miracles. You entertain us. You show us. You put us in some awe, right? Entertain us. And Jesus says, "Mm, I don't think so. Now, Jesus uh, did miracles, actually a lot of miracles. And there was always a reason why he did them. Actually, two I want to give you. One, to demonstrate compassion. He really has compassion on people with brokenness and ailments and physical hurts. His heart was revealed in his miracles. But his miracles also were authenticating. They showed that indeed he is the Messiah because he was doing the works that only the Messiah could do. That this one, that he is God. He was not going to be reduced in sort of, sort of sideshow attraction. And then look at what Jesus says. He says, verse 24, and he said, to, said Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Okay, now that's going to get them up. The wrinkles up right now they're like okay no prophet is welcome in his hometown what jesus is doing now is he's saying listen how you're behaving what you're thinking i want you to know you're standing in a long line of tradition of the people of israel rejecting the one that god sent let me give you some prophets you ever heard of these guys isaiah jeremiah ezekiel micah amos they have a a lot of things in common but one thing in particular. Anybody know? That's right. They were all killed by their Jewish brethren. To be a prophet was to probably be a death sentence. Because you see, people don't like God confronting them on their sin. They're like, I'll work God into my plan, almost like a little genie. I'll call him to him when I need him. I'll work him into my life when it's convenient. Oh, we see the same thing today. So don't think like, oh, that doesn't happen today. Oh, no, that's pretty much how it works. And when God says, listen, I'm after your heart, and what you're doing is not right, you're missing the mark, I want you to know most people don't take very kindly to that. And uh, Jesus is about ready to really spell out in great clarity what's going on. Look at verse 25. He's going to give some examples, two in particular, of some of the dark episodes in Israel's history. And so after he said, no prophet is welcome in their hometown, then he says this, verse 25, but I say to you in truth, here's the first one, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You remember, remember when the great famine took place? Three and a half years. Like, no crops? There are a lot of starving people in Israel and yet, Elijah, where does, who does he provide for? A Gentile woman who's a widow. Like, no one's thinking of her except God. All of Israel simply didn't repent, didn't get the message, so guess what? God sent Elijah to someone that no one was thinking about. And then to drive home the point even further, he gives another example, verse 27. He says, remember this one? And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Oh, the Syrians were the enemies of Israel, and that's right. Their general had leprosy. Now, they thought leprosy was like, I mean, you were totally unclean, and it was because of some major sin issue in your life, and the general of the Syrians had leprosy, and guess what? Elisha healed him. There were a lot of lepers in Israel, but they were all avoided. God had his prophet turn to the Gentiles. And what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, what you did with them and how God responded, I want you to know, That's what's about to happen here. You see, Gentiles and lepers were on the very bottom of the ladder. I don't even know if they were on the ladder. They maybe just got stepped on. The Jews despised them, they were worthless. They would avoid them, but not God. God sees people in their brokenness who cry out to him in need and come to him as the only hope, and he responds. And you see, that's the problem. The folks, the fine folks of Nazareth, why, they, they didn't see their need. Jesus spells this out to them, says, I'm the fulfillment. But you know what? They're like, mm, you know what? We're really good people. We're respectable. We're synagogue-going. We're what you call God-fearing. We're family-oriented. We've, uh, we're, we're solid folks. And if that's how you see yourself, then you might miss the need for God's grace in your lives. certainly did with them. In fact, they were kind of infuriated, and that was the problem. They didn't see themselves in need. And so when God shows up, the Messiah's there, and he says, you need me? I'm the fulfillment? Uh-uh. We don't want that. In fact, we hate that. Look how they respond. Verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Think of it. These are the people that knew him his entire life. He knew them. Friends now who hate him. And they take him to a cliff and they're about ready to throw him off. And this is what they would do. They'd throw people off the cliff if they're going to kill him. And then once they're down, they're all kind of broken up, then you just take rocks and you just pummel them until they no longer are moving and breathing. Now, for the Jews, uh, they weren't supposed to execute anybody, first of all, uh, unless there was a trial, and unless uh, th- that trial happened on a day other than a Sabbath. And furthermore, Rome said, you know what? We don't like you killing people. We'll take care of that. Uh, you have to work through us and with us. You know what? They are so angry. They're so filled with rage and wrath. Guess what? We've got what's called a lynch mob that takes here with folks from Jesus' hometown that knew him all his life and they hate every word that he has to say. And then notice this, you know, what takes place here, well, this is a picture of Jesus' ministry. Him telling the truth, they fully rejecting it. But notice this, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went his way. He went his way because he is the way. Like it says in John chapter 7, verse 30, his hour had not yet come. There is going to be a time where Jesus will allow himself to be killed, but not yet. It's going to be on his timetable after the fulfillment of all righteousness, done exactly the way it has been prophesied, but not now. And so imagine this, and just see this, what takes place. But passing through their midst, he went his way. They got him at the edge of the cliff. Can't you see? Hands on him. They've got stones in their hands, and they're trying to push him off. And then all of a sudden, Jesus turns around, and he looks in the eyes of all these people that he knows, and they know him. He puts his hands down, and he walks right through their midst. These guys all have rocks in their hands. And he looks at them. He looks right into their souls. And this is a miracle of divine proportion. God working his way through their midst. He is going his way. You see, Jesus had confronted them at their deepest need. Remember when he said that? Verse 21? Today the scripture has been filled in your hearing. That forces you to a choice. You see, Jesus didn't like, well, I'm going to start something new, and so all the Old Testament stuff, that doesn't really matter anymore. Judaism, it's going to be completely different. We're going to just forsake that. No, he's the fulfillment of all the promises, all that is written. He is the one who fulfills everything they were hoping for, but they didn't want him. You know, it's interesting. They didn't want him because they didn't see themselves as poor and in need. And that's true for a lot of people today. There's folks that are like, you know what? Hey, I'm family-oriented, and, you know, I, I showed up to church at different times, and I'm a nice person. Do, I do good in my community. You know, I got a college degree. Some of you got lots of degrees. I've got a really important job. I make money. People count on me. I'm good. Well, I want you to know that those things can be uh, almost inoculating, to keep you to see the real need in your heart. And we're, frankly, a lot really too proud to say, what do you mean I I need a Savior? I'm a really good guy, or I'm a gal that's got it all together, and I got a nice family. God wants your heart and for you to see your need so that you will truly trust his son. St. Augustine said this, They love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth when it accuses them. And that's what the truth does. And so I'd just like to ask, how should they have responded? Well, you don't have to guess. Mark says this, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Listen, repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent means to change. To change one's mind, that comes from it leads to a change of heart, leads to a change of action, change of direction. Repent. But they wouldn't. They didn't see their brokenness, they didn't see their bondage, and they didn't see their blindness. And everything Jesus had to offer, they're like, not interested in that. Our response to Jesus is revealed by what we do with his words. So what is, what is it for you? How do you respond to Jesus? Are you in the camp that I'm going to reject and remove him from my thoughts? A lot of people are there. I'm just not interested in that kind of savior. I I like help, but I'm not interested in salvation that forces me to really address who I really am and the darkness of my heart. Some people respond in anger. You got a whole bunch of them right here. Some are just kind of apathetic, you know? I'll tell you this, though. To not receive Jesus ultimately is to reject him. On the other hand, there are some that respond this way. They repent and they receive him as Lord of their life. How will you respond to Jesus? It's interesting, you know, Jesus goes his way because he is the way. In fact, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know that the early Christians were called people of the way, his way? Because Jesus is the way. He's the living God. Kent Hughes uh, writes of a large, prestigious church in Great Britain. And this particular church had three mission churches in some of the slums in their city. And they saw some rather radical transformations and testimonies of people in great darkness, thieves and people that had committed murder and, and some other really evil stuff, and they had come to know Jesus. And so what they would do at the beginning of every year, the very first Sunday, they would all come together for a worship service and have communion. And uh, on one particular uh, Sunday where they all came together, uh, there was a, a guy who had been a burglar, had served seven years in prison, who had come to Christ, and actually, uh, really, God was using significant ways in terms of his ministry and service to others in the name of Jesus. And he so happened to be standing next to the ju- the judge of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, who years ago had actually sentenced that man into prison. And so, after the service, the the judge was actually walking with the pastor, and they were kind of making their way, and And the judge said this as they were walking. Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the two just kind of walked in silence. And the judge said, you know, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor nodded in agreement. What a miracle of grace indeed. And then the judge inquired, but but whom do you refer? And the pastor said, well, of the former convict. And the judge says, That's not what I was referring to. I was thinking of myself. And the pastor said, what? You're thinking of yourself? And listen to what this judge had to say. You see, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus could be his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford. I obtained my degrees. I was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be, though, in fact, I, too, was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. Friends, our response to Jesus is revealed by what we do with his words. What will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage. Everything that we really need to know about Jesus right here in this hometown visit. Father, if there is someone here that's never truly trusted in you, they've been trusting in their own righteousness, good works, but they finally see their need, their need for forgiveness, the fact that indeed they're a sinner at heart and only Jesus can truly transform and change hearts. Would they pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin, and this morning I trust in and believe in you. Fill me, God, lead me. And Lord, for all of us who do know you, Let us walk in grace. Let us live in light of the revelation of who Jesus is and the word that he has given us. God, thank you. Thank you for your love. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.